Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or in the Pew Bible in front of you to page 648, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As we look today at uh, the first 15 verses of chapter 3, a classic, the first part of it anyway, classic piece of Scripture that is familiar to many. You've heard it read at funerals, perhaps. I couldn't help but thinking, uh, and by this I'm going to reveal my age, I couldn't help but thinking uh, as I read through uh, this passage and prepared to preach on it, Ecclesiastes 3, of the song that was made popular in the mid-60s. Now, I know some of you weren't even thought of yet, and you will have not a clue, but tune out for a minute and let us older ones remember in the 60s when we were young, the popular folk rock song by The Birds, do you remember it? In 1965, I think it was, long, long time ago. What were the words to it? To everything, turn, 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 there is a season. See, some of you were alive then. <laughs> turn, turn, turn. Uh, that was borrowed, did you know, from Scripture. I love that when uh, secular musicians have to turn to Scripture for their inspiration. We've been working uh, these last couple of weeks through the first two chapters of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, the words of the preacher, the teacher, Quohelet in Hebrew. And as we've been through these last two weeks, we've found uh, this to be peculiarly a very contemporary-sounding book to our ears. The, the dilemmas and the questions and the answers that Quahelet is looking for here uh, all strike us as being very contemporary. If you haven't been here, let me just quickly review where we've been thus far to catch us up. The thesis of the book is found in the very first three verses of chapter 1. Basically, his simple thesis is, life is empty, meaningless, futile, a without God. And he states it that boldly. That's how he puts it. Not because that's his final verdict on all of life, but because he wants to shock us into reality. The reality of what we face if we attempt to live life under the sun. And you'll remember that that, that phrase, life under the sun, is his code language for a life that is lived apart from God. Life under the sun, that is, a life that divorces itself from and does not factor into it the eternal, heavenly, divine perspective on things, but instead looks on life simply by the limitations of our human horizons, the natural order, our lives, the things that we experience in these temporal world. That's what he calls life here under the sun. And Solomon says that that life, a life lived apart from God, is absolutely empty, futile, meaningless. It's a bad joke. Now, having made that basic starting point in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he attempts in the rest of chapters 1 and 2 to give us 
uh, some insight into this uh, experiential trial, if you will, to, to let us in on his search for meaning and purpose. And he talks about the different ways that he and other people strive to find life and meaning apart from God and supply meaning to life. And so he talks about his journey through wisdom and pleasure and work. And he explores each of those three ways, wisdom and pleasure and work. And he finds in the end that each of those ways comes up empty. They all fail. He says, look, if you, if you take the way of wisdom, which I did, you think hard about life, you contemplate the, the deep gravities and subjects of life, you discover that, that a, a life of wisdom and attainment of knowledge is not going to lead to a life of meaning, but instead it's going to lead you to a life of despair. So he says, okay, let's shelve that idea. Wisdom doesn't work, so let's try fun. So he does fun. He does pleasure, and he says, well, if I can't think my way to pleasure, then, then I'll feel my way to happiness, to satisfaction and enjoyment. And he says, don't you even bother trying because I've done it better than all of you. I have, I have unlimited resources. I, I could throw money at it. I, I had a thousand women at my disposal. I had lands and palaces and I had it all. I had the world by the tail. And when all is said and done, when I thought about what I had done, I discovered that it was empty. It was utterly meaningless. It didn't fill me up. It didn't give me satisfaction. It didn't give me the contentment that I thought I would find if I pursued sensual pleasure. So if wisdom doesn't work and pleasure doesn't work, then, then I'll try work and activity. I'll build things. I'll plant things. I'll leave a legacy for myself and the things that I create with my, my own two hands. I'll throw myself into this quest and activity. And he tries that, and in the end he said, I have decided again that life apart from God, whether you're talking about wisdom or pleasure or activity, life apart from God is empty. Now, having explored those three avenues, wisdom, pleasure, and work, trying to find meaning there, but coming up empty, he then, in chapter 3, where we're at today, provides us with what I think is a full-scale solution to this dilemma. I mean, where do you go if wisdom won't supply meaning, if, if pleasure won't satisfy you, if if work or vocation or human attainment, political, social, moral, won't supply meaning and purpose to your life, then where do you go? He tells us here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Solomon helps us to understand how to live in the middle of a sinful, broken, and crooked world. He's gone from the contemplative life where he's try to pursue it in wisdom under the sun apart from God, empty. To the sensuous life, searching for meaning 
and satisfaction and pleasure under the sun, apart from God, empty. To the act of life, searching for meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in life through vocation and work and effort and building and creation under the sun, apart from God, empty. And he can't find meaning or happiness or real blessedness or satisfaction in any of those things. They all draw up zilch in his book. So where does he go? For the first time in the book, he now gives what I think is a full-scale solution to this dilemma, and his answer may surprise you. His solution is the providence of God. His solution is the sovereign providence of God. Now, we often think of this big theological term, the, the providence of God, His gracious goodness leading us and directing our path, His sovereignty that He is over all, that He is in control. We think of those things typically as a topic for theological debate and doctrinal discussion, for disagreement and differences between Bible-believing Christians. But the preacher here in Ecclesiastes sees the providence of God as the solution to all the problems of this world. He sees it as the solution to the meaninglessness of life apart from God. You see, I believe that the world, this temporal world, is divided into two camps. Those who believe in God's providence, that is, that He is sovereign over all, that He is in control, that He is the King, heaven is His throne and earth is His footstool. There are those who believe that, and the other camp are those who reject it. And everything else in between is just simply a variation on one of those two themes. I want you to know where I'm coming from. I believe in a sovereign king, the living God, who sits on his throne, and that he orders all of life and its pathways. He did not just set the universe and the world into motion and let it go as the deists thought. No, our God, while he is a transcendent being and a a, a mighty God, this God is is involved in the, the affairs of men. He's involved in my life. He's not uh, treating me like a puppet on a string, but, but if I allow this sovereign God, He will direct and order my life and my pathway so that the prayer that we just sang a moment ago will be true, that I will be more like Jesus in my heart. I will be more loving. I will be more holy as the sovereign God in His activity is at work in and through my life. Now, the problem, though, is when you accept and embrace this idea that God is sovereign, that He's over all, that He's controlling uh, all the events in the universe, the problem is, what in the world do you do with the bad things that happen in life? How do you manage, how do you answer the mysteries of things like suffering and pain and, and evil? How, how do you reconcile those things? If God is in control. And I have to admit to you that, that in my journey so far, there are some things that, that still remain a mystery to me. I don't understand. I don't understand 
why innocent people are placed in bondage. I don't understand why innocent children go hungry and are impoverished. I don't understand why war rips people from their homes and their loved ones and and innocent individuals are killed. I don't understand. But it does not make me shrink back from my belief that I serve a sovereign God who is on the throne. And there's nothing that has entered into my life and your life. This is my confidence today. There is nothing that has entered into our lives that has not first passed the review of God. He knows about it. And not only does He know about it, He cares about it. And so the preacher is saying here, I think, that the only solution to meaninglessness in life is to accept the fact that there is a sovereign, divine, providential ordering of things in this world that supplies it and saturates life with meaning, and that apart from, apart from that ordered divine plan, there is no hope in life. So he says, there is a time for everything. A season for every activity under heaven. Time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to uproot. Time to kill, a time to heal. Time to tear down, a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. Time to mourn and a time to dance. Time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And on one level, those couplets, those coupling together of opposites, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to tear and a time to mend, On one level, Quohelet the preacher is saying, look, because of the nature of life, there will be moments when you will cry your eyes out. And there will be moments when you will laugh your head off. One comes, the other goes. In this earthly sojourn, There's a time for everything. It's just the way life is. Life has times and seasons. Just like the created order has a seasonal quality to it in the fall, we don't don't tell the leaves to turn color and drop from their limbs. God, the sovereign providential God, does. Who created it all. And somewhere along uh, mid-September, early October, the, the leaves turn into this rush of gold and, and, and orange and red. And before you know it, the leaves are falling and we're raking them up and bagging them and setting them on the curb. And along Halloween time, the, the colors change from orange and red to white. And the flakes begin to fall and fall and fall. 
And we think winter will never be over. I say, since we're so close to the record for the snowiest winter on record, let's go for the gusto. If we only have ten more inches to go, let's do it. Might as well make some redemptive sense out of all this white stuff. But somewhere along March or April or May, (laughs) the drifts will begin to melt and we'll begin to see the, the brown grass that's been matted down by the heavy snows. We'll begin to spring forth in a bright green and the the snowdrops and the crocus and the daffodils and the tulips and the roses will begin to bloom. And we'll enjoy the fresh days of spring and we'll throw the sash up and let the breezes blow out the, or the winter must. And then summer will come. And we'll enjoy the lazy, hazy days of summer Sipping lemonade in our hammock. Who does that? I want to know. (laughs) And before you know it, because of the, the seasonal quality of life, once again, if the Lord tarries, the leaves will begin to fall and the snows will come. Life is like that. It has times and seasons. And the preacher says, don't push that away. The sovereign God has ordered it that way. And so He has done in your life. And there are times for weeping and there's times for rejoicing. There's times for for building up and there's times for starting over again. That's the way life is. And so in the wise words of Rick Warren, Pastor Saddleback, in the happy moments we should praise God. In the difficult moments we should seek God. In the quiet moments we should worship God. In the painful moments we should trust God. And in every moment we should thank God. Because as verse 10 says, God, the sovereign God, takes all of these times and seasons and He makes everything, what's the word He uses? Beautiful. In my time. No. no. In your time. No. He makes all things beautiful in His time. We're all so fired and patient. We keep rushing ahead of God. Instead of allowing the sovereign God to, to providentially order our paths and direct us into pleasant places, we force our way in. Oh God, if you're not going to get busy and do this, then, then I'm going to do it for myself. These verses, though, are are more than just a common-sense observation because they are part of the old, ancient Hebrew wisdom tradition. These verses call for us 
to not only observe that everything has a season and a time, but it calls for us to figure out which time it is. What time is it anyway? Is it a time to laugh or is it a time to weep? The idea here is that there is an appropriate time for all of life's experiences. God has ordered it that way. Have you ever laughed at the wrong time? (laughs) I have. I attended a funeral several months ago. Pastor Dave Snyder, my dear friend and colleague, was officiating at this funeral. I got there early and chose my seat behind a row of elderly folk. I was in the fourth or fifth row. Most of the chatting and friendly visiting had ended, and we all became aware that the time had come for the service to begin. Everyone became very quiet. The tape-recorded music had been uh, perfectly turned off by the funeral director, and Pastor Dave, in, in his pastoral regal quality, entered the room, stood behind the lectern, cleared his throat. And the elderly gentleman sitting in front of me said, not in a quiet voice, but in a full-throated vibrato, he poked his neighbor and said, I'm hard of hearing. If he has anything important to say, will you let me know? Oh, yay. I looked at Dave. Dave winced at me. I bowed my head in prayer. And while everyone else was able to contain themselves, I just blurted out a... (laughs) It was entirely the wrong time to laugh. A wise person not only observes the times, but also responds appropriately in the time. There is an appropriate time for everything. The unpleasant as well as the pleasant experience. This is the argument of Ecclesiastes 3. It's not just a description, a mere description of what happens in life. It's a description of what God sends our way. Furthermore, it seems to me that Quohelet is saying that there are events and circumstances that are beyond our control that will enter our lives. There are times and seasons we may not be able to figure it all out. We may not be able to tell the the beginning from the ending and everything in between is muddied and blurried and gray. But there is one who stands behind it all. His name is Jehovah God. And He is the Almighty Sovereign God. And He sits on the throne. And He's got a design and a plan and purpose. And all you need to do is open yourself up to Him. And embrace the time in which you find yourself. Don't resist it. Don't push it away. But instead, embrace it. You say, I'm supposed to embrace this time of suffering. Yes, exactly. Embrace this time of suffering. 
Because in this time of suffering, you will find the consolations of Christ to be oh so sweet. Don't push it away. God has ordered this. And if Paul knew what he was talking about when he spoke to the Romans, then I have every confidence to believe that all things, not just some things, but all things work together for our good and His glory to those of us who love God and are called according to His purposes. Do you, saints, do you believe that? Say, Amen. Don't push it away. Embrace it. Lord, what are you teaching me in this time? What's the lesson I need to learn in this time? How can I learn to depend more fully through you? I love the old song of Andre Crouch who said, Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. That's what happens when you embrace the times and seasons of your life. Not only observe that it's a changing season, but say, thank you in this moment, in this season of my life, God. I don't understand it. I don't have it all figured out. But I embrace it and I know that you are with me in it. What a powerful thing. Now, interestingly to me that that the first eight verses here uh, in chapter 3 parallel precisely the thought that Solomon was talking about in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Remember in chapter 1 he was talking about uh, everything goes around in circles. The north, the south, the waters, the evaporation cycle, all of that. However, here in chapter 3, he, he does this observation at a very different angle than he did in chapter 1 and verse 3. There he asks us to look at life. How? In chapter 1, he asks us to look at life under the sun, was his words. However, here in verse or chapter 3 and verse 1, notice what he says. He says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun. No. Under heaven. The perspective is changing. No longer is it under the sun. Now it's under heaven. Because there is a sovereign, loving, gracious, holy God who providently is ordering all of these things and has a plan and a purpose and a design for it all. And I think there's a big difference in that perspective. Now, it seems to me that the huge question that leaps off the page, though, when we come to the end of this list of a time to this, a time to that, the huge question that we're left with is the question that Solomon asks in verse 9. So what does the worker gain from his toil? In other words, what's the profit of it all? When you look at life and you slice it down to its bare essentials, what's the reason for it all? Again, Solomon concludes, if your life is nothing more than just a horizontal trip from the delivery room to the funeral home, if that's all your life is, then it's empty. It will be profitless. 
Times to laugh will be empty. Times to embrace will be empty. Times to mend. Times to you name the time. It's just futile activity without and apart from God. And wise people understand this, Solomon says. But in verse 11, he says, wise people also know something else. Wise people know They sense the punch of verse 11, which says that God has laid eternity on the hearts, on our hearts. That is to say that that you and I carry with us a sense. We all know this inherently. We, We have a sense that we were created for something more than just letting time happen to us. You and I were made for something more than just lamenting about how quickly time passes. God has given us an innate sense for the something more of eternity. Is that not why Blaise Pascal would say that God has has shaped within each of us human beings, unlike the rest of of the created order. God has shaped within us a God-shaped vacuum. Is that not why Augustine would say that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee? That we are just searching in this horizontal plane and if we always are constantly searching for for life and meaning and purpose just in this horizontal trip between birth and death, apart from God, it's all going to be meaningless. Because we all have a sense that there's something more. God has set eternity on our hearts. He has not only sovereignly ordered the events of our lives, He has also put within us a sense for eternity. We may be human finite beings that exist, In chronological time, we may be defined by our limitations. But every once in a while, in the middle of time, we get a glimpse of eternity. We have an inkling of something more. We hear an echo that comes wafting to us from a far country. And every once in a while... It doesn't happen all the time, but every once in a while, something stirs deep within our soul in a new and in a fresh way. And we get a taste of something that's beyond this world, something beyond ourselves, something that cannot be contained or explained by human language. Randy Alcorn in his book, In Light of Eternity, writes, think about the special spiritual moments you've experienced. Perhaps it was during a time of prayer, in worship at church, in a conversation with a loved one, or or while you were walking on the beach in the woods. Have you ever had a sudden sense that you were, I love this phrase, moving on the edge of eternity, briefly yet truly breaking into its circle, knowing that in that moment you were exactly where you belonged, taking part in what the universe must be about. That, says Alcorn, that was a glimpse of eternity. I have a hunch that you know what Alcorn is talking about. Because there, there is within us 
within each one of us, every man, woman, and child in this room. A sense that we were built for something more than just this life. That we were built for eternity. And we know inherently that there's something more out there. We know it because the teacher claims that God has dropped this on our hearts. Larry Crabb, Christian counselor, says, Ever since God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, we have lived in an unnatural environment, a world in which we were not designed to live. We were built to enjoy a garden without weeds. Every horticulturist would appreciate that. We were built to enjoy relationships without friction. Anybody going through separation or divorce would appreciate that. We were built to enjoy fellowship without distance. Any preacher would enjoy that. But, Crab continues, but something is wrong and we know it. We know it both within our world and within ourselves. Because deep inside we sense that we're out of the nest, always ending the day in a motel room and not at home. You and I were built not for a motel room. We were built for home. And our home is found in God. And apart from God, you will remain restless and pursuing an empty life. We have a deep ache in our heart for Eden restored. We have an eternity in our hearts. And that's not just some hopeful pie-in-the-sky dream, a fantasy like Peter Pan and Neverland. No, the Bible says that God has put that within us, which would prompt C.S. Lewis to say that our Heavenly Father has provided many delightful inns for us along our journey, but He takes great care to see that we do not mistake any of these for our true home. Is that not why the writer of the old Negro spiritual would say, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Why do we know that innately? Because God has hardwired it into our soul. And you can argue it until the cows come home, but you know it to be true. And there's a longing in you for home. There's a longing Deep calling unto deep in the depths of your spirit for more than this temporal world can provide. And this is an itch that we cannot scratch apart from God's plan and sovereign order. Our problem, though, is this, that we are so wrapped up in the present that we rarely, rarely give much thought to eternity. But every one of us in this room has eternity written on our hearts. And I remind you that you're not really ready to handle life until you're ready to face 
death. This is the thing I want you to remember this morning. So I'll say it again. You are not ready to really live life until you are ready to face death. And someday they're going to haul you out of your home or the retirement high-rise or the skilled nursing facility because you're dead. Time as you have known it will be over. But eternity will have begun. Death is certain for all. The Bible says so. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for men once to die and then what? The judgment. For some of us in this room that day is closer than we think. The sensible person faces up to the fact that death is inevitable and the sensible person makes provision for that final episode of earthly time. I might remind you today that there's no way that you can adequately prepare apart from Jesus Christ. Those who come to God through Christ will enter heaven when they have drawn their last earthly breath. But for unbelievers, for those who reject Christ and His gift of grace and eternal life, That moment, when you draw your last breath for the unbeliever, that moment will seal your eternal doom. Not just for a lifetime, but for all of eternity. So I ask you today, are you ready for that moment in time? When time shall be no more, when the earth will melt like wax, when God with the wave of His hand will usher in His eternal kingdom, are you absolutely sure that heaven is your home? I would say to you, if you are not, then you're not ready to live. So this morning I point you to Jesus Christ, who is the author of life, who gives us hope and grace and assurance and peace and eternal life. Jesus said this. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. Therefore, we ought to pay attention In fact, they're so important, I want you to read them aloud with me. They're on the screen behind me. Let's read it together. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Isn't that good news? Passed from death? life.
And if you've never done so, I urge you this morning to place your faith in Christ. Acknowledge that He died for your sins and rose victoriously from the grave. The gift of eternal life is there to be received this morning. So take God's gift while you have time. Then whether the expected, that is death, comes sooner or later, you'll be ready for both time and eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, today some of us find ourselves in seasons that we'd rather not be in. Suffering, pain, relational strife, mental and emotional torment. We don't understand, Lord, all the times of our lives. But today, at the level of our will, we choose to trust in you, our living and sovereign God, and cling to your promise, Lord, that you make all things beautiful in your time, that you work all things together for our good. So, Lord, for those who are chafing against the season that they find themselves in, Help them to just rest in your embrace and trust in your promise. Not only, Lord, have you built us to live in this earthly sojourn, but you've set eternity on our hearts. And we know, Lord, that there's coming a day when each of us will have to face you, our creator and sustainer, give an account for our life and answer what have we done with Jesus. So, Lord, help us today to, even though we don't have it all figured out and we don't have all the questions answered, help us to just, by faith, trust in you and receive your grace, this wonderful gift of eternal life. We praise you and we give you thanks for both time and the assurance of a blessed eternity that's out there for us who believe in your Son, Jesus.